This is Daniel Self, lead pastor of the Orchard Church, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Afterwards, if you would like and subscribe, or if you want more information on The Orchard or to support this ministry, find us at theorchardlife.com. Now know that we are praying for you today, that God would speak to you, and you would have a breakthrough. Man, what a great morning it's already been, whether you're here in the house or whether you are joining us online. If you are joining us and you... Uh, are watching on YouTube and skip the beginning. Um, this is baptism water. Just want to make sure I clarify all that it's happening. Thank you for you guys who stepped into baptism. It's such a beautiful thing. Uh, I am so glad to be back, and I just want to say that uh, as Amy and I have been praying for you guys and what's happening. I got some time off last week and planned out the entire 2024 speaking calendar and where we're going with Exodus and beyond. And we're in Exodus today. I'm so thrilled at what God's got for us. Now, I am gone a few more times in the fall, but back in the winter, we are going to dig deep into what God is doing. And I want to thank Pastor Dan for all he has he's been up to. Uh, one thing that's been great about our partnership is he is so talented and gifted in areas that I am absolutely not. And so he has been doing so much here in our church, the community groups, and adding some depth. Uh, I'm just so happy that our church is coming together in these ways, and I'm looking forward to what God has for us, um, God willing, uh, for the next decade. And as Amy and I always talk, God, please let us retire here. We love this place, and we love you. So as we jump into Exodus today, um, I am excited because what you're going to see today is more than meets the eye. And if you are just coming into the orchard, you're visiting with us today, you might might not know kind of where we've been, and that's okay. I'm going to give you the, the, like, you know, the beginning of every episode on Netflix, they give you the skip recap. I'm going to give you the recap, no skip. Uh, we are talking about the book of Exodus. We're on chapter 19. The first 18 ver chapters go like this. God's people were in slavery. Uh, Moses grew up in the palace for 40 years. He left because he murdered somebody and fled for his life, lived in the wilderness for 40 years, and God said, go back and get my people. He went before the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And from that point on, God, the universe, had this showdown with these false gods of Egypt and showed them to be powerless. And then Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt to the Red Sea. And of course, that's where Charleston Heston shows up and he splits the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his chariots, they try to go through and get squashed. And God leads his people out of slavery, out of danger, into the wilderness. And we're on this journey. They don't know how long it's going to be. They're going to be a little surprised. But they're on this journey to a place that God has for them. Now, we pick up there in Exodus 19, verses 1. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived at the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, until this moment, if you've been with us through the Genesis series or even Exodus 18, 1 through 18, we have been moving swiftly. I mean, we have the creation account, then we have Adam, then we have these, these, these men and women of the faith. We focus in on Noah and his family, and then Abraham's family through generations right? Down to jo Joseph that leads us into the slavery. And then now we're focusing on Moses. And it's these, these that, those cover thousands of years, each of those movements. But here in, in Exodus 19, the entire narrative and the pace changes completely. The exciting, jam-packed action story that led to these children of Israel getting led out of captivity and out of slavery is going to change, and it zooms in on some rather interesting events and teachings. And from here in Exodus 19, throughout the entire book of Leviticus and the first 10 chapters of Numbers, 
we're going to remain in one location for exactly one year. The rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, the first 10 chapters of the Numbers, right here at the base of Mount Sinai for one year. A year's worth of instruction, impartation, education, as God is going to reframe for his people who he is and who they are. And so here we are, we're starting Exodus 19, this second movement of Exodus. Join me as we look at verse 3. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob, that's the Israelites, announced to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Like, remember what happened two months ago. You've seen what I did. You, you know how I carry you out on eagle's wings. Like, I divinely rescued you. I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This is the message, Moses, you must go and tell the people of Israel. What we're going to see unfold here in Exodus 19, actually through 24, may seem like these commandments. Because the Ten Commandments come in the very next chapter. We know those. Like, we get it. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, do's and don'ts and religion. We get it. Now, we're going to see these things happen, but I want you to be reframed today. Because there's so much more going on. And I never want you to see the Ten Commandments or Exodus or even your faith now the same way because of what we're going to look at today. Because believe it or not, what I just read from God in Exodus 19, that is the beginning of a wedding ceremony. It starts here in the first three verses. It's a betrothal, actually, from God. A betrothal, unlike an engagement, is much more of a legally binding agreement much deeper than an engagement, but they also, like an engagement, leads to a wedding. A betrothal begins, and the wedding process begins as God starts reminding them of who he is, who he was, and what he's already done. Remember, he says, I rescued you. I, on eagle's wings, I saved you. I love you. You will be my special treasure. I will be yours, and we shall enter into a covenant. What kind of covenant? He's going to be talking about a wedding covenant. This would be as similar to an engagement of our day and age. Engagements lead to a wedding, just like betrothal leads to a wedding. And I love weddings. I got a wedding, I got a wedding next week in Louisiana, where they still do weddings, down there in the south. I'm going to Louisiana, and, and weddings are a, a special um, covenant, a beautiful time. And just in the, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of weddings, I wanted to show you a few pictures to see if you know who these people are who go to church with you. First of all, we have this. Who do we have First. You might recognize those people. Those are two. That's our elder Connie Casey and her husband Steve Casey. Yeah, yeah. Keep going. Next one. Right there, we have our fire chief Rob Goodwin and his beautiful bride Teresa, and the man marrying them. That's my twelve-year-old father down back there. It's a while ago. That's a, yeah. That's that's the police, police fireman Rob right there. Next one. Then we have, now that is, speaking of Louisiana, that's John Hammonds, a lawyer, and his wife Marlene, who looks the same, but that's from 1852, I'm told, that picture. <laughs> then we have, oh, I don't know if you know Roz Fowler, who does Operation Christmas Child and Missions here at our church. That's her, and that's Jay and his hair on the right. <laughs> Next, that's another one of our elders. That's, this is Kim McGraw and her husband Ken, right there. Yeah. Next. Now, that's another one of our elders. That's Travis Stewart and his wife, Cresta. She looks the same. Next. Who's that on the right? Who is that? That's Micah, our worship pastor. That's her husband, Eric. Next. 
Who's, on the, who's that on the left? Pastor Stacy, our children's pastor, and Lane right there on their wedding day. Last one is this. You know, I made, I made a really good decision that day, and that was marrying Amy, but the hair, I'm not so sure about if that was a good decision. I love weddings. I love them. Weddings are great. You know, it's a, it's a party, but, but we have to admit, in our, even our Western tradition, we have a ceremony. We have, we have routines. We have things we do, things we wear, things we say, things we throw. All these kinds of things are part of a wedding tradition. They had an ancient wedding tradition back then as well. God is giving them this betrothal early in Exodus 19. Now listen to what I did for you. Now come, let us make a covenant. You will be mine. I will be yours. Now, how do the people answer this betrothal request? In verse 7, Moses returned down the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them about this betrothal the Lord had commanded them to give. And all the people responded together, I do, is what they said. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And so Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. And there we are, believe it or not, and you will see more is coming, that we are betrothed. Something is happening. Now, how long do our engagements last for? They can last, I mean, last, I was asking, what's the shortest one and longest one in the place? Anybody engaged over two years in this place? Anyone want to admit that? Anybody engaged under two weeks? Yeah? <laughs> one of our elders. Okay, great. Um, are we moving right along. Uh, engagements can last any amount of time, but a betrothal, a betrothal lasted one year. One year for the covenant of marriage and all that had to happen to be completed and sealed. And for the groom, when after that betrothal, he had one year to go accomplish some things. He must go to his father's house, where his family lives, where he lives, and he must build a place onto their house to provide a place for his bride to return to. He has one year to do this. In fact, he might say something like, in my father's house there are many rooms, to signify that he's providing for her a place to come and live. From the moment of the betrothal, he has one year. Now, I told you earlier that from Exodus 19 all the way through Leviticus in the first 10 chapters of Numbers was how long? One year in one place. We have a betrothal at the beginning. What is God doing here? Well, we're going to look at what God's doing. It's interesting that God rescues Egypt. In Exodus 19, he begins this wedding language, and they're going to stay here for a year. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud and Moses so the people will themselves can hear me when I speak to you. Then they will trust you. What God and the people are going to discuss in the coming chapters and verses is called the ketubah. A ketubah is the ancient Hebrew marriage covenant, still active today. They still many times use the ketubah. It's a covenant, it's a contract that's much more intricate, much deeper and richer and more binding than oftentimes, especially in this time, than our marriage licenses. The typical ketubah of this time would include the names of the two parties, like the date, and then it would have all the specifics from the bridegroom and the bride for their wedding like their wedding, what they're going to, not the wedding, the marriage, how they're going to live, how they're going to love, what they're going to do for one another, financial obligations, rights of each party. And so notice that God in his betrothal, he says, you'll be my own special treasure for among the people. Now the Hebrew word here for treasure is actually possession. And in these ancient times, a bride would be purchased. 
Now, I know we think this is so antiquated. I get that. I get that. But back then, the bridegroom would bring a payment to the father and his father-in-law, and it would be, the payment was called a mohar. He would bring a mohar to, to redeem, to purchase the bride. This is so backwards and antiquated in our, in our time, but back then, this was a huge leap forward for women's rights, believe it or not. Until the ketubah, until the mohar, until the Torah, until some of these things where God is changing the way that things are viewed and done, any man can go and take any girl, any woman, against her will even, and after consummating love or lust, whatever it would be, he could discard her without any repercussions oftentimes. She had no rights and no standing. But the Torah and these laws, look at what they require the man to do. He must love her enough to have a betrothal with witnesses where he promises something, and then it doesn't happen right away. He's got a year. He's got to go build. He's got to sacrifice from his own money and build a place for her to come and live. He has to really like this girl, and then he has to um, sign a contract to honor her, protect her, provide for her, and support her. What we're seeing here is that there was sacrifice required from the bridegroom. You have to see that. There's a sacrifice required from the bridegroom for his bride. He has to make the covenant, build the house out of his own money, give the mohar to the father-in-law, and then after all that's been fulfilled, he has a contractual obligation, a ketubah with her, which he just can't discard easily. This would also, the ketubah, would have various conditions and specific stipulations that the couple agreed to to abide during their wedding. We have our marriage vows, Right? And marriage vows are great, they're, they're powerful, but oftentimes our marriage vows in our Western culture are so general. I'll love you until the day you die. I'll love you forever. You're my adventure buddy from here on to infinity and beyond. Like whatever it is we want to say, we just say some symbolic things like I, you have me at hello, whatever it is. Um, but in those days, oh, 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 it was specific. Like to how you treat, how you act, money, how you split things. I mean, everything was in this ketubah. The bride and the groom, what they valued would go into this marriage covenant. And guess what? God is about to do this very thing. He's going to, in the ketubah, add very specific stipulations and values that the marriage would value. Now, when you, if you've been married or if you're, you plan on it or hope to, you would hope that your spouse values what you value, that they value loving you above all other people, that they value the wedding vows. And God's going to put these in here. And what we see in the very next chapter is the Ten Commandments. Now, what are they? I want you to never again look at the Ten Commandments the same again. I want you to never view them the same. We see them as a list of do's and don'ts from an ancient society. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Religious rules we should conform to. It could not be further from God's intent. If we see what God's doing in Exodus 19, building up to the Ten Commandments, he's actually going to unveil ketubah, wedding, vows, covenant to his people, to the bride and between the bride and groom. And in a marriage vow, you say things not because of you have a duty, but because you have love. That's what the Ten Commandments are. I mean, in our traditional Western marriage vows, I put them up here, we say, I promise to love you, honor and keep you, forsaking all others, I'll be yours alone as long as we both shall live. Many of you recited that very thing in front of God and friends and your spouse. Now, was that a terribly heavy burden? I'll forsake all others. 
Like, I mean, like, is it, was it some duty, some religious or relational, like, are you standing up there? Oh, okay. No, 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 it was a beautiful statement said in front of God and witnesses. It was a vow of how you would love those, I will forsake you and love you. It flowed from love for your spouse. That's what the Ten Commandments are. Wedding vows that come from the heart of God and from the heart of people. And what's the first commandment? Well, God, I'll forsake all others. And I'll love you alone. I will have no other gods before you. What are the commandments were there? I, I will make no idols or images. God, you will be first in my heart. Do you see how these commandments are not just religious uh, rules to follow to, so that God's happy with us? No, no. In a marriage, you don't, you don't follow the values of your spouse and the wedding vows to earn love. You do it from love. That's what the Ten Commandments are. I will love you above all things. I will forsake all others. It is you. It is only you. I hope you're beginning to reframe the Ten Commandments, not some dusty, dutiful, boring, submissive lists of religious do's and don'ts. God is wooing his bride. He's rescued her. He showed her great acts of power. He's freed her from false gods, these other lovers. He's led her out of captivity. He's brought her into the wilderness, free from distraction, where he's going to court her and show her his glory. And listen to what he says in Hosea, this love for Israel. He says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her, Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is what he's doing in Exodus. He's the bridegroom who, who, who's unveiling a wedding for his bride, his people, who he's, he's rescued, who's delivered, and he wants to enter into a marriage contract, a ketubah covenant with. And when they get to the covenant of marriage, the ketubah, God begins to reveal the guardrails for what that would look like for a happy, healthy, thriving relationship. We have these in our marriage, these values in these guardrails. So let's see this next verse that says, Exodus 19.10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate, that means cleanse, ritually cleanse yourself, today and tomorrow and have them wash their clothing. Now, again, without any context, it looks like he's saying, go take a bath or a shower and get ready for the rules to come. Like some big rules are coming, the Ten Commandments. You know, get ready, take a shower. But in the context of a wedding... There's much more going on here, more than washing. This is an ancient custom that's still alive today. Back in those times in Hebrew marriages, the bride would be cleansed in what's called a mikvah. A mikvah is a ritual bath used for purification. Orthodox and conservative Hebrew weddings still involve this. But even if they don't, women, like, what do you do when you're going to get married? Well, you go, you say yes to the dress. And you have someone show up who does your makeup and does your hair and does all your bridesmaids. And, and then he, um, the guys, you know, we all dress up and, and we get the cufflinks for once in our life. And then we, we shave and we do our hair. We, we, we do the mikvah without the ritual cleansing. We want to look our best. We want to present ourselves. The bride presents herself with, in white and the husband presents himself there at the altar. We present ourselves. That's what he's saying to do. Go consecrate yourselves. Go get ready, wash, and cleanse yourself. God tells these people to participate in a tradition they would have been familiar with in wedding talk. And then God tells Moses that none of the people are to come near the mountain or touch it or there's deadly consequences, which seems strange. But what God is introducing here is sacred places. And we know this, that weddings are sacred. They should be sacred. It's God's idea. 
that what he's introducing is sacred places that the foreshadowing of a tabernacle and a temple and other things to come. What he's saying is don't take this lightly. This is a covenant that is consecrated, that is sacred. There is something going on here that is divine. God tells them, go and cleanse yourself for three days. Prepare yourself. Abstain from intimate relationships. Don't approach the mountain and wait for I will call you to the altar. And then on verse 16. On the morning of the third day, after the cleansing, after the mikvah, the thunder roared. Thunder is also a word for God's voice. The thunder roared. The lightning flashed. Dense cloud came down on the mountain. You gotta imagine this. You're down there, you've cleansed yourself. In the context, you know there's some wedding ceremony going on, the ketubah, and there you are, and there's thunder booming. You feel it in your chest, like that bass, you know? And then there's lightning crackling and striking. A dense cloud appears before you over the mountain, like a big canopy. The people down below, they look up and they see this. Of course, they're frightened, but they see this canopy cloud over the mountain, and without context, we just still think this is an awesome display, don't we? Like, wow, look what God's doing. He's coming down in fire and, and, and lightning and, and thunder and clouds over everything, but guess what? In the context of a wedding, you see, the, the canopy is a beautiful symbol in every Hebrew wedding, even to this day. The, the one of the necessary objects in a Hebrew wedding is oftentimes the, the chuppah. Everybody say chuppah or chuppah. Yeah, there you go. It's a canopy that covers the couple as they agree to their marriage covenant, the ketubah. And this canopy that covers everything, that symbolizes the home, that the groom is someday going to take his bride off to, but also the covering of the covenant, the symbol of the love and protection that, that houses them. And here we see God himself covering the wedding grounds with this chuppah, an awesome, powerful, beautiful in his glory. I mean, we have these elements of a wedding present, the bridegroom waiting at the altar. We have the bride, the people, cleansed in their mikvah, prepared. We have the betrothal and already the acceptance. We have the chuppah covering the mountain, and we hear the ketubah. We will get more clarity on that, the wedding covenant, as it's revealed over the course of the coming year, along with the preparation of a place of dwelling, which we will get to. The ceremony starts in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, the thunder roared, the lightning flashed, dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord had descended on it from, in the form of fire, and smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. The whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on top of Mount Sinai and called Moses at the top of the mountain, and so Moses went up. I'm going to stop there <laughs> because we have a lot to get to. Oh, it's going to, I'm so excited about where we're going. We're going to unveil so much more of the ketubah in the weeks to come, and I hope you see today what God's doing there and what God's doing here at Mount Sinai is more than you may have ever thought before. It's, it's not some killjoy God just coming down to give a rule book to people. Thou shalt not have fun. It's not, it's not some God that, you know, you got to follow this or die. Some religious God who just chose some people and said, all right, time for some commandments. That's what this world needs, commandments. Do you see what's happening here? This isn't some distant God stepping down briefly with decrees to burden his people. This is a God who wants to come down and be with his people. And that's not new. 
When we went through Genesis, we saw that he created everything to be the God who would come down and be with his people. And what's going to happen in the New Testament? God is going to come down and be with his people. It's always been his desire, his intent. But here, I mean, he's coming down. He's promised his forefathers that he would give these people a name. He promised them an identity. He promised them a land. He promised them someday a Messiah. And he led them out of captivity by his mighty hand. He revealed himself to them and wooed them and led them and protected them in the wilderness, fed them, provided water and manna when nothing else was there. And after all that, he leads them to the altar of Mount Sinai for a wedding ceremony that he has planned. That he would be their one and only. That they would forsake all others and love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of the ketubah, the ancient wedding covenant. And what does an ancient wedding ceremony on a faraway mountain have to do with us? Like, like, that's great, right? That's some cool history. But what does that have to do with us and our faith? What does it have to do with you and me here now today? We have a canopy, a chuppah, a ketubah, a feast, a wedding, commandments, tabernacles, sacrifices, all here in Exodus 19 and then moving forward. Now, the New Testament writers, they oftentimes talk about this very happening. The New Testament writers will refer back to this covenant, this wedding covenant, this ketubah, and they say, it's a shadow of things to come. Like, like it's, it's just a taste of something else that's going to come. It's going to be far greater reality. So we have this wedding here on Sinai with all these things. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of what is to come. If that's true, then what God did on Sinai, what is he doing in our life? What has he done for us on the other side of the cross? What if I told you that everything God is doing here on Mount Sinai for one nation back then, Jesus would do for all people who come to him. Again, thousands of years after Mount Sinai's ceremony, Jesus would walk the earth. And do you know what Jesus referred to himself as? Oftentimes, the bridegroom. A bridegroom requires what? A bride. In the New Testament, context, the church is the bride of Jesus. Now for men, I know this, you're like, oh, I'm marrying Jesus. Listen, the church is his bride. You get to be his son. Women, you get to be his daughter. But we, the church, are his bride. He is our bridegroom. And when you begin to read through the covenant language of Jesus and what he's doing, wedding stuff pops off the page all throughout the gospels. He has done all that is necessary to provide us for a new covenant, a new ketubah of love and a wedding. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, like God the Father here in Exodus. Jesus came in power. He defeated the gods of sin and death, just like God defeated the, the gods of, of, of Egypt. God, Jesus provided a, a way out of spiritual slavery, out of our Egypt of spiritual slavery, the same way God provided a way out of slavery for them. God parted the Red Sea. Jesus parted the Red Veil, which you will find out divides humanity and God's spirit. And what about this mohar? Remember that? Remember that antiquated system of buying a bride, a payment for a bride? What did Jesus pay for us? If he is the bridegroom, what did he purchase? What did he redeem you with? 1 Peter 1, 18, 19. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. It was not paid with mere gold or silver, 
which lose their value. Your mohar was a precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Do you see what he purchased his bride with? His blood, his sacrifice, our salvation, our relationship, our wedding ketubah, the church was purchased with the mohar of his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, other, other wedding symbols we see all throughout the Bible and even all throughout modern and ancient weddings, um, there's always a cup of, there's always wine in these ancient weddings. In fact, in the ketubah, in these uh, Hebrew weddings, there, there was a specific cups of wine. They had all these separate blessings. I read them. They're beautiful. They're, they're traditions for, for hundreds and thousands of years. But, but, but one of the cups of wine, they would drink there during the ceremony together. And they would drink, they would drink the cup of wine in celebration of the new covenant they were forming. They would drink this cup to celebrate that a new covenant had been formed that day for them and they would be different moving forward. And then they would save a second cup of wine for a future time for the bride and groom to celebrate. Hmm. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, he holds up a cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which was poured out as a sacrifice for you. A new co- we celebrated a new covenant with this blood. Now, the next day, his blood would be shed for that covenant. He's talking about ketubahs. He's talking about blessings and wine. But what about that next cup of, next cup of wine? You know, the, the husband and wife would always have a, ne- a future cup of wine of celebration. Well, Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it, new with you in my father's kingdom. Like, yes, we will have that celebratory glass of wine, not making the new covenant, but celebrating the new covenant. We will have that cup of wine, but I will not touch it until we are in my father's house, which I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so what happens? Jesus said he wouldn't drink it again until we're all gathered together. And Revelation talks about this. Revelation talks about the wedding feast at the end of the age full of wedding. And guess what, guess what Jesus is going to do? It seems that when we all get to heaven and we're gathered and we all sit down for the wedding feast, the first thing he's going to do is pop a cork. Let's celebrate the covenant that he made with his people as he gathered his bride together. What other responsibilities did the groom have? I've already talked about some of these. Once the marriage covenant was agreed upon, the bridegroom in ancient Israel would have to leave. He would leave his beloved he had one year to go prepare a chadar for her. A chadar was the wedding chamber, the wedding house they would live. Now listen to Jesus' words in John 14 through an entirely different lens than you ever have before. John 14 too. He says, there's more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. That's ketubah. That's wedding. That's covenant. That's marriage talk. That's a bridegroom preparing a place for his bride. What does this mean? It means the God who descended in fire on Mount Sinai is actually presenting a covenant of love with his people. And I want you from this point on to view the rest of Exodus that we're going to look at. Because we're going to get into all the Ten Commandments and what they do and do not mean. Look at all of it, not through the lens of rules and regulations and religion, but from the heart of a bridegroom to his bride. Guardrails of values that keep a relationship happy and healthy. 
The Old Testament reveals that God, the bridegroom, and his wayward bride, and how they interact, and understanding these Old Testament commandments and the, as wedding vows will give us a new perspective. And, and, and when you then see that Jesus came and he forged a new wedding covenant for us, I hope it will begin to take this New Testament and what some of us have become to believe that Christianity is this dusty old list of do's and don'ts. That Jesus says, no, don't do that and do this and act strange in public and thump your Bible and you have to vote this way and you have to do it. I hope you begin to see that that's, that's not at all what his heart, that he came and gave his life and bled and died and rose again, not to give you rules to follow, but because he wants a relationship and he calls you to a covenantal marriage because he loves you, you're his beloved. And he took them in the Old Testament from bondage to beloved and that's what Jesus does today. He takes you from bondage to sin to beloved son and daughter. You go from slavery to son and daughter. But the same God who did something there on Sinai for those people, Jesus came and did it for us, and he's preparing a place that we get to go and pop the cork and celebrate what he has done for us. Orchard, we are not part of a nice, sweet, boring religion. No, we're not supposed to conform to certain rules and ways of acting. No, no, no. We're to be transformed in a relationship with our God who gave everything he could to call us to something different. Never look at the Ten Commandments, the laws, the same. And never look at your relationship with God the same. Because he moved heaven and earth out of love for you. As we go into worship, I want you to take out your communion. If you don't have communion, uh, we have it up here up front. We have it over here. We have it in the back. If you're at home or listening on podcast, you can take communion wherever you want. You don't need a priest or a preacher or anybody. It says, do, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we pause right now and talk about the sacredness of this covenantal cup of Jesus' sacrifice. And so we first take out the, the bread, the symbol of his body. Let me pray for us today. Jesus, we remember you. We ask you forgive our sins. We ask that you would help us to remember that your body was broken for us, that we can enter into a new covenant with you. Thank you for your broken body. Take and eat. And Jesus, we thank you for your, your blood that was shed for us. Much like at a wedding, they would drink to celebrate a new covenant. You gave us a new covenant. We don't drink this one to, to someday celebrate. We will have that cup. But today, we drink and thank you that you provided a new way for us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, this cup of a new covenant for us. Take and drink. We celebrate today a God who at Sinai came down, not for religion, love came down and set us free for love. And Jesus came down out of heaven and then off the cross so that we could be child, children of God. He came down and rescued us. There is an appropriate response today to this sort of idea, this teaching and its worship. Would you stand with me, Orchard? Would your hearts and your voices join as we thank God that he came down then and he came down now to save us, set us free.